In just a moment, we'll turn there to Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 23. But I would share with you that the wife, as let me review for just a moment, the wife is a picture of the church. And that is, as we saw today, as the church is under the spiritual leadership of Christ, the wife is to put herself under the spiritual leadership of her husband. Now when we come to the husband, we see something even more profound, and that is he is a picture of Christ. For as Christ loved the church and quite literally gave himself for it totally, because that her, as is spoken of as being a bride, then the husband is to love his wife and give himself totally for her. This indeed lifts marital love to the highest level possible. As we'll see this evening, it brings it up to what is called sacrificial, the agape love of the New Testament. Now folks, this principle continues to amaze me because to every fellow husband I say, think of that. We are pictures of Christ. We are to be the picture of the Lord Jesus Christ in our marriages. And again, as I shared briefly this morning, if that doesn't make a deep impression upon us, there is something terribly wrong with our spiritual perception. So therefore, how sad the macho attitudes and descriptions of manhood that we find today. I find this appalling, and of course, out where I live, that's a big deal. Out west, I mean, I carve this ranch out of nothing, and I've got my horses, and I've got my stuff, and I can do anything on my ranch. And I see that everywhere. This is even true of some so-called Christian books. One that was written by John Eldridge, uh, his popular book, Wild at Heart. I don't know if you've read it. I don't recommend it. And the reason I don't is because it would take virtually a book to deal with all of the error in it. He said that we men should get our examples of manhood from Gladiator or from the Patriot, or from Braveheart, or Die Hard. I mean, those are real men. I beg to differ. A man who will stand for the Lord Jesus Christ, love his wife and children, and strive for a godly home is a real man. And Paul dealt, of course, with the wife first. And we looked at this morning why the problem of submission the problem that by nature she will not submit and does not want to submit. So ladies, I, I know we dealt with you first, and maybe you feel picked on because of that. But let me share this with you. When we note that the husband's passage is three times as long as yours, that kind of makes up for it. And the reason that we see that is because of his much greater responsibility. So indeed, Paul details those responsibilities. And I want to share with you that the point that we must first make is that everything concerning the husband hinges on one word. What is it? Love. One word. You see, love is the tempering agent of the wife's submission. Did you get that? Love is the tempering agent of her submission. You see, lest the husband be tempted to lord over his wife, 
we are commanded to cherish her. He is to have the same attitude toward her as Christ does for the church. Again, in today's emphasis on machoism, sincere expressions of love towards one's wife is considered, um, you know, uh, weakness or being henpecked. A little tongue-in-cheek there. Uh, we think of him as this cold fellow that spoke of, you know, all of these intellectual things. No, in fact, what is wonderful, as those of you that are familiar with Calvin's Institutes, he wrote one of the greatest treatises on prayer that we have in the Christian church, right in his, right in his institutes, right on the heels of his presentation of election. Prayer. And then he turns around in his commentary on Ephesians and makes this statement, if you don't love her, you're a monster. That shows a man who was sensitive and understood this willful, sacrificial act. I want to share with you, therefore, more deeply, some major emphases this evening. Ponder, first of all, in the way to love your wife, the three types of love. The three types of love that we find in the, in, in, in the Greek, in the original language. We all know that there's only one word in the English to express the concept of love. That fact can be a little bit confusing, don't you think? You can say, I love fried chicken. By that way, that was great fried chicken today, folks. I love fried chicken, or I love my dog, or I, fellas, I, I hope you know the difference when you say I love my truck, I hope you don't say that the same way that you say I love my wife, or there's going to be a marital issue, okay? We know that there's differences in how we love something, but none of that means the same thing. The Greek, however, makes a distinction. There's three words for love. The first is the word eros, where we get the English word, of course, erotic. We first need to understand the history of this word. And in fact, in classical Greek, that is, when we say classical Greek, that was what became, uh, came before the New Testament Greek, before the Koine, back in the days of Plato and Socrates and those guys. Back in secular Greek, therefore, eros denoted the love between a man and a woman that involves loving, craving, and desire. The problem with the word, however, is that it further speaks of a loss of will, a complete loss of discretion, and a throwing off of any semblance of moderation on the way to ecstasy, and was tied, in fact, to the fertility worship of the pagans. Even worse... And this word was a mystical understanding, whereby the Greeks sought to reach and go beyond normal limitations in order to attain some kind of perfection. Further still, in fact, it and its related words degenerated so that they stood for lower things, so Christianity could hardly have annexed these words into any kind of use in the Koine New Testament Greek. Now, folks, I tell you that because of this. It's extremely significant that it never appears in the New Testament. The reason is obvious. There is nothing positive in the word eros. It is divorced from any uh, idea of uh, godly love. It is divorced from any of the other types of a deeper and more meaningful affection and willful sacrifice. In fact, it's not even used for the physical relationship of the husband and wife because even the physical relationship between the two transcends the erotic. But what are we told today? 
It's all about eroticism. No, it isn't. Now, folks, that said, there is nonetheless a place for that physical expression of love within marriage. God has indeed made provision for it and has approved his blessing upon it. Now, I strongly disagree with the sex talk that is so pervasive in churches today. I was, in fact, recently sickened by the utter filth I heard come from the emergent leader Mark Driscoll's pulpit. I was appalled. And how in the world anyone can ever sanction any aspect of his ministry is beyond me. That is not what I'm talking about. So I don't want to go in, in any, anything graphic or anything, but I would encourage you with this. For the husband, it's all about quantity. For the wife, it is about quality. We'll leave it there. And in fact, that physical manifestation of love should be the expression of something far, far deeper. That leads us to a second kind of love, and that is the word philos. Of course, we get the word Philadelphia from that, the city of brotherly love. Um, yeah, anybody ever lived in Philly? <laughs> right? And it speaks of a tender affection, a tender affection, a fondness, an emotional tie. At times, the word actually refers to a kiss. So the key here in this, in, as far as marriage is concerned, is an affectionate friendship. Every husband needs to be reminded of that and ask the question, is your wife your best friend? My wife's been my best friend for 40 years before I even married her. And indeed, you should be the other's best friend. If I may put the matter as practically as I can, is there a real affection and emotion for your wife. Put it another way, are you crazy about her? Just, I mean, crazy about her. When I met that girl, I know, I, this may shock you, I met her when she was 16. I married her just a month shy of being 18. I was crazy about this girl. I, I pulled up, I met her at church, as a matter of fact. I was a, a young preacher at the time, still in Bible college, and I had gone to this church to preach for the day. Um, because the president of the college asked if anybody was interested in, in filling the pulpit. And I went to this little church in Indiana, and I was on my birthday, actually. This was my second time there, and I came back from the um, afternoon that I had spent with this couple at the church. Unbeknownst to me, the couple, the feminine side of it, was my wife's cousin. Didn't know that at the time. And we pulled up after the afternoon pulled up for the evening service and I saw this girl walking into the church long gorgeous hair and I said to Kathy I said Kathy who's that and she says oh that's my cousin Debbie I said oh why don't you introduce us and being the shy fellow that you probably can tell that I am Kathy never got around to it so I introduced myself and I've been crazy about her ever since. Folks, one of the greatest tragedies in marriages today is that the romance has evaporated. Each person has grown accustomed to the other. Affection has dwindled. 
And I want to encourage you, as I did this morning, if that has happened, I would encourage you to get it back. Now, I do not mean that you need to go out and buy a book that suggests artificial ways to put the spice back in your marriage, okay? And the reason is because such books, even though written by Christians, often miss the whole point. What is needed is for us simply to obey God and renew the affection that we have for each other. Husbands need to ask themselves, when was the last time I told my wife that I love her? When was the last time I just took her in my arms and kissed her? When was the last time that we just did something together, just the two of us, just to get away? Now granted, that might seem a little uncharacteristic at first. The story, in fact, is told of the Irishman who was convinced, convicted by a sermon that he had been negligent in expressing proper love and appreciation for his wife. So after being convicted, he hurried home. He burst into the kitchen with a speech of belated gratitude to his faithful wife who was standing at the sink. He got all done, and she stood there transfixed, staring at him in utter bewilderment, and finally she managed to say, well, this is just too much. This morning I broke one of my favorite plates, I've got a splitting headache all day, and now you come home drunk. <laughs> so yes, at first it might be a little uncharacteristic of you, but it'll get easier. Okay? We should add it is vital that children see that affection. You know the best thing, dads, you can do for your children is to love their mama. That is one of the greatest things that you can do to show them that relationship. That leads to a third kind of love, and that is the agape. The sacrificial love that we find the majority of the time in the Greek New Testament. I have yet to find, in all my years of ministry, I have yet to find a better definition than this. If you've got one, I'd love to hear it. But I believe uh, it is good that it is a self-emptying self-sacrifice. The agape is a self-emptying self-sacrifice. If we really love someone in this way, we will disregard ourselves and we will think of them. I enjoyed reading this comment by R. Kent Hughes. I always enjoy reading that uh, beloved pastor. I believe he is now retired from the pastorate. But he wrote this, quote, Here the commandment to men is just as radical as that to women. Such a command does not appear in any of the extra-biblical household rules of the day. Now that's important. You don't find this in extra-biblical literature of the day. The novelty of such a religious command must have struck these Christians with great power. Husbands were commanded to love their wives? What a novel thought! And therefore the command was not to erotic love, as some would expect, or even to friendship love, but to agape, which involves unceasing care and loving service for the wife's entire well-being. The Christian ethic for a husband's love for his wife was light years beyond the formal domestic ethics of the day, unquote. As I've shared with you already, the Apostle Paul revolutionized women, now he revolutionizes marriage. 
revolutionizes the, the relationship between these two. And why could he do that? Because it's based in Christ. You know, some, I know some pastors, I hope I don't get in trouble with this, but I know some pastors will marry two unbelievers. I know we, you know, we say, well, I won't marry an unbeliever uh, to a believer. I won't do that. Folks, I wouldn't marry two unbelievers even at gunpoint. Because if you don't start out with the right foundation, this isn't going anywhere anyway. How can I possibly counsel them? in premarital counsel, if Christ is not the center of that relationship. Would you ponder also, now that we understand, I hope we understand these three types of love, would you ponder the characteristics of agape love that Paul underscores in this passage? If I may say it one more time, the husband's love for his wife is a picture of Christ's love for the church. Let me share five principles with you briefly. First of all, the husband's love is sacrificial. That goes with the word itself. Even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself forth, that is sacrifice. The Greek word that is behind the word gave literally means to give over, commit, yield up, or abandon. Several years ago, I ran into a story that just mesmerized me. It is told of the 6th century B.C. Persian ruler Cyrus the Great. And it graphically demonstrates that Cyrus was neither ordinary nor typical of rulers in the ancient world. Cyrus actually was generous, lenient, and even tolerant. According to Ezra chapter 1 verses 1 through 4, for example, he freed the Jewish captives in Babylonia, allowing them to return to their homeland. But according to one of the ancient Greek histories, the wife of one of Cyrus's generals was accused of treachery and condemned to death. As soon as the woman's husband heard of what was happening, he rushed to the palace. He burst into the throne room. It was a death sentence in and of itself. Bursts into the throne room, throws himself on the floor before the king and pleads, Oh, my Lord Cyrus, take my life instead of hers. Cyrus replied, love like that must not be spoiled by death. He released the wife. They left the palace. And as they left that palace, the husband commented to his wife, did you notice how kindly the king looked upon us when he pardoned you? Her response was, I had no eyes for the king. I only saw the man who was willing to give his life for me. That is sacrifice. Oh, preacher, you don't know my wife, though. You never met this woman. She, she doesn't deserve that kind of love. Neither do you. So therefore, Christ loved you. Practically speaking, when was the last time you made a sacrifice for your wife? When was the last time you did what she wanted to do or went where she wanted to go? No, you might never be called upon to die for your wife. But indeed, as one wife said to her husband, Dear, I know you are willing to die for me. You've told me that many, many times over the years. But while you're waiting to die, would you mind drying the dishes? 
Folks, if there's one thing that I've learned in 39 years of marriage, it's the fact that women appreciate the little bitty things. The little stuff. You girls are, are funny critters. You really are. You like the little stuff that to us means nothing. But you do. I think it's adorable. Well, I, I, it's those little things. And I wish I had another illustration, but I don't have another example at hand that I think matches this, so I have to tell it on myself. I don't like to do that. That's a rule you're not supposed to do in, in preaching. All us preachers know that. We learned that in homiletics class, right? But besides, I'm not really building myself up at all. As you're going to see, I was clueless. So therefore, I usually stay up later than her. I'm a night owl. So one night, I noticed that the dishes were still in the dishwasher. Okay, I thought, okay, whatever. So I just put them away. I got most of them in the right place. And then I forgot about it. The next morning, my wife comes into my study while I'm, I'm, I'm in there, and she said, you put my dishes away. I said, yeah, so? She said, you couldn't have done anything that would help me more than that. I don't mind loading it. I just hate unloading it. So guess what? Little thing I've been doing for the last six years. <laughs> but it's the little stuff. And girls love that stuff, guys. Believe me. You'll thank me, okay? Do the little things. But indeed, we do it because we love them. It wasn't a big deal to us, but it is to them. Ponder first, then, the husband's love is sacrificial. Secondly, the husband's love is sanctifying. Sanctifying in verse 26. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word. I want to read you something, and let me break this down a little bit more. The word sanctifying is the word hagios, and it means set apart or pure or holy. The word actually has a twofold meaning, to set apart from sin and unto God. So let me break it down a little bit more. First, the godly husband takes his wife out of the world and away from the past. He never does anything that exposes her unnecessarily to sin. Now, folks, I originally cut this out, but I decided right at the last minute I want to just share an illustration with you actually from the book. I read an appalling story that graphically illustrates this principle. And the story was this. Several years ago, two ministers were interviewing, being interviewed on a popular talk show. When the host asked, what they thought of Playboy magazine, one of them replied, I think it's despicable. I wouldn't read it or have it in my home. It dishonors God, it dishonors men and women, it dishonors almost anything else that is good. Amen. <laughs> but God, indeed, the other response was, the other minister responded this way, I am an evangelical Christian. And I want you to know that my wife and I both read Playboy. In fact, she gave me a subscription to it. After 18 years of marriage, we thought we needed something a little to stimulate our relationship. That's appalling. That man not only defiled himself, but his wife as well. 
That is the exact opposite of what our love for our wife should be. It should be a sanctifying love that he might sanctify it and cleanse it and keep it cleansed. Secondly, ponder also the husband sets the wife apart unto God through the word of God. Some have argued over what water actually refers to here, but I'm convinced the language couldn't be clearer. Using a beautiful metaphor, the Apostle Paul says that the husband cleanses his wife through the washing of the water by the word of God. That is what is going to cleanse us. It's the word that cleanses and sanctifies. It's also extremely significant that the word behind word is not the usual word that's used in the Greek New Testament. Do you follow that? Usually the word is logos, or, uh, and, and lego means I say, or it speaks that logos means intelligence, or word is an expression of intelligence or discourse or a particular saying or something of that nature. But the word that is used here is so unique. It is the word rhema. And it is the word that speaks only of individual words and utterances. It's more specific. Individual words, individual statements in the word, not the thing as a whole, as we would give a lecture, but individual statements. Among many occurrences, in fact, it appears in John 3.34 to refer to Jesus coming to speak what? The words of God, individual utterances. It's also in Romans 10, 17, you know the, know the verse, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word or literally the words of God, the individual utterances that proclaim specific truths. Fellows, the challenge, therefore, to us is staggering. The husband is to be the spiritual leader in the home. It is the husband and father who teaches spiritual values and the dangers of the world's values. It is the husband by individual utterances that teaches the authority that scripture should have over us. It is the husband who teaches personal witnessing for Christ by example. It is the husband who teaches and admonishes about the importance of faithful attendance in the local church. Fellas, it's up to us by the words, the utterances of God's word that we indeed are those who are sanctifying. Ponder thirdly, husband's love is sacrificial, it is sanctifying, and it is thirdly, spotless in verse 27. It is spotless that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Flowing right out of the sanctifying love is a love that is without spot or wrinkle. Spot is the word that literally refers to a spot or stain. Therefore, metaphorically, to some kind of moral flaw. There is no moral flaw in the love that he has for his wife. The word wrinkle is from an obsolete word that means draw together, which is indicative of age or disease. So therefore, neither should there be any other such defect, no disease, no spot, no wrinkle, nothing that mars that relationship. And on top of that, the word blemish means spotless or free from faultiness. So, folks, she is to be his spotless, pure, unblemished bride. She is the beauty and the radiance of his life. 
she should always be his bride. Ponder fourthly, the husband's love is sacrificial, sanctifying, spotless. And fourthly, it is strong. It is strong. Verses 28 and 29, so ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loves himself, for no man ever yet hated his own flesh. How strong is a husband's love for his wife? Simple. He loves her as much as he loves his own body. How many of us as men, we, you know, we abuse ourselves? And the reason we don't abuse her is because we don't abuse ourselves. She is part of us. We are one flesh. The relation of the head and body means that the wife is part of the husband's very self. To love his wife, therefore, in this character as being his body is to love himself. Paul is obviously not implying this self-love that is popular in our day, rather simply the natural inclination that every person has to his own self-awareness and self-preservation. So, does a husband hate himself? Would he mistreat, abuse, or harm his own body? Would he speak harshly to himself? Would he say something disrespectful or insulting to someone else or himself? Of course not. Likewise, the man who truly loves his wife would never think of doing anything in any of these to her. There is undoubtedly only one thing that is worse than a man who abuses his wife, and that's one who would abuse a child. You know, I've read stories of, uh, of abuse. Of, I, you talk about no level of tolerance. You are a low life form, dude. Sorry for the vernacular. You're a low life Women, our wives, are to be cherished. Finally, the husband's love is also sensitive. It is sensitive, verses 23 and 29. He is the savior of the body, but nourishes and cherishes it even as the Lord, the church. Continuing the, that previous principle, we see in, ver, in these verses more of the husband's physical care of his wife. The word cherish it's a Greek word that means to nourish, to promote health and strength, bringing up, and even to educate. It's interesting, the same word is used in reference to bringing up children in chapter 6, verse 4. The emphasis, again, is on the spiritual, but it also deals specifically with physical nourishing. The root word that is used here means to feed and therefore reinforces that, pro that principle that he's the provider for the family. Now, please notice that he adds the word cherish. That translates a word that paints a beautiful picture. The Greek that is used here, thalpo, means to impart warmth, to cherish and nurse. And, and, uh, nurse. and as we mentioned earlier, this takes us back to the machoism of our day. But what this really pictures is a bird imparting body heat to the nest. That's the guy's responsibility. You know, you, you can walk into anyone's home and you know there's a, there's a woman living there because it's got the woman's touch. But God uses us to heat that nest, right? He uses us to provide that so that she can make a warm nest out of it and develop it and make it unique to that family. That's God's original design in creation. 
But once again, the fall shattered it, and it is up to each of us through spirit filling to restore what has been destroyed. I'd share one other principle with you, and that is we see the will to love your wife, the way to do so, and finally, the wealth in loving your wife. Verses 30 to 33, and I'll share some thoughts with you here in a moment. Paul closes his thoughts on marriage by showing the tremendous wealth in a godly marriage. He shows us that there are blessings within marriage that transcend human thought and understanding. The tragedies are great when we disobey God in this area, but the blessings are equally great if we obey. Let me again briefly just mention three. The first great wealth in loving your wife is unity. Unity. Verses 30 to 32. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. One flesh means one person. Each individual marriage is incomplete. Uh, uh, each individual in that marriage is incomplete without the other. One is just half of the equation. And each brings into the marriage qualities that will together make up the whole person. Paul's point is simply this. Marriage is designed to be a perfect union between a man and a woman. I, I just, I can't even imagine not being married. I, I wouldn't be a whole man. I wouldn't be the preacher that I am. I wouldn't be the man that I am without that unity, that oneness. To go a little deeper, Notice the word joined. This is a wonderful word. Please get this. The Greek here is the word proskalao. You seminary guys, you'll know what that means. It's a beautiful word that means to glue or cement together. Now that's pretty vivid, isn't it? To glue and cement together. Showing true intimacy. So when we glue or cement something together we pretty much are planning on keeping it together, right? And have you ever noticed any woodworkers in the building? When you put wood together and you glue it together, it's stronger than the wood itself. Therefore, that is the picture. Folks, we are to be glued together, cemented in that relationship, in oneness and unity. Ponder, secondly, is another aspect of this wealth is love, once again. Verse 33, nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself. In light of the attitudes toward marriage in the Jewish tradition and pagan society, this concept of loving one's wife was revolutionary. But we now go one step deeper to show that love is its own reward. It's its own reward. Love brings its own wealth to a marriage and to that whole family. Love generates a feeling of belonging. Each family member will feel he or she belongs to a complete unit, something that is whole. Love generates a feeling of purpose, a feeling that life does have meaning, and it indeed has a lasting purpose. And finally, unity, love, and respect. Latter part of verse 33, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Interesting word that is used here in the Greek. It is the word phobeo where we get the English word phobia. 
That seems odd. And in fact, it, it seems odd because a phobia is an exaggerated, inexplicable, illogical fear of something. But only in the literal sense. When phobos or phobeo is used in the moral sense, it means basically the idea of respect. For example, we see in Mark 20, verse 6, Herod feared, that is, respected John, knowing that he was a just man. The principle, therefore, in our text is that a wife should be able to respect her husband, that is, have cause to admire him, highly regard him for his character and what he continues to do for her and that entire family. Now, my dear friends, I, I had planned originally on ending there, but not yet. I want to share something with you that actually, if, if you're upset, take it out on the pastor. He requested that I do this. I, I really appreciated this. He sent me an email, and he said, I, I would like you to address a particular issue. I really appreciated The more that I pondered what he requested, uh, the more it blessed my heart. He wrote me, he said, Brother, I, I was wondering maybe that if you would address how to avoid divorce when the romance goes sour. And in the vernacular of the day, I thought, cool. As I pondered that, I added this material. And again, just for a few moments, I, I hope we realize the critical nature of his concern. That is wonderfully perceptive of that dear pastor. Folks, for just a moment, consider, I'm going to share three points in just a moment, but consider this data for a moment. It is common knowledge that one out of two marriages ends in divorce. When you look at that per capita, on a percentage basis, the U.S. divorce rate for the year 2000 was 41% per capita per year. Now, those statistics come right from the National Center for Health and Statistics, the NCHS. But now there's something that makes that even more significant, and that is the fact that this rate is only for the states that keep record of divorces. Not all 50 states do. As a matter of fact, my home state does not, California does not, Louisiana, and Oklahoma. None of those actually keep divorce statistics. So in contrast to that particular percentage, the Census Bureau consistently reports that the rate is closer to 50%. Looking at the raw numbers is even more dramatic. The total number of marriages in the year 2000, for example, was 2,355,005. Now that includes the states that don't report divorce numbers. You still with me? Or are you glazing over? You still, are you still there? All right. Out of that number, there were 957,200 divorces, which is 40.6%. But again, excluding the states that do not keep divorce records. Another interesting interest, uh, uh, statistic that I found was that as of the year 2000, 18.5% of the U.S. population is divorced. That's about 11 million three, roughly. 
By gender, it's 8,572 males, 8.3%, and 11,309,000 females, 10.2%. Now, you still with me? One more. When we look at the data a decade later, 2011, things seem to be better. They really seem to be better. But have you ever heard the expression, appearances can be deceiving? And they are. And the reason is this. For while the divorce rate actually is lower, the number of marriages is lower. Why? <laughs> you know why. More are just living together. It's an amazing statistic. How many are opting of just living outside marriage, living together? As of the year 2000, in fact, there were 3.8 million couples. That translates times two. Even I can do that math, but that, that's the limits of it. That's 7.6 million people living in sin outside of marriage. A clear indication of America's moral decline, in fact, is that according to the NCHS research, this development appears to be the new norm in this country. Estimates for 2006 to 2010 showed that nearly one-half, 48% of women aged 15 to 44, have cohabited before marriage. I also found this. A survey was taken with the following question. The question was, would you agree or disagree with this statement? A young couple should not live together unless they are married. The results are appalling. The results were only 30.8% of women agreed while 68.3% disagreed with the rest of them undecided. With guys, of course, it's worse. It was only 28% agreed, while 70.8% disagreed with the rest undecided. More and more couples who claim to be Christians actually are cohabiting outside of the covenant companionship that God has designed. And what is more appalling still is there are pastors in pulpits that never confront them with the truth of what they are doing. That is the most appalling of all a growing number of professed Christians. Now, folks, why did I go through all that? I did it to ask this. Do you want to be just another statistic that demonstrates the moral decay of our nation? Far more importantly, do you want to be just another example of the decline of Christianity itself? because so many of those individuals who are divorced are believers. Do we want to be a statistic? Therefore, if I may briefly just encourage you once again with three principles. What do we do if we see that romance turning a little sour? First of all, forgiving love. Forgiving love, and I don't believe there is a better scripture to note here than that of the minor prophet Hosea, who exemplifies God's forgiving love. 
Just as Hosea married Gomer, who then committed literal adultery but was restored because of Hosea's love, Israel committed spiritual adultery but will also be restored. In fact, as you read that fascinating story, guys, how many of us would have the grace that Hosea had? As you read that story, you discover that Hosea makes Gomer's life hard so she will return, but at the same time, he stays by her side, lovingly meeting her needs. Even after all her sin, Hosea actually bought her back out of the slave auction. Chapter 3, verse 2. Can you imagine that? I mean, I know how I'd feel. Hey, woman, <laughs> that was your deal. Bought her back. And what is so significant here is Hosea's unchanging love for her. Now, folks, this is not warm fuzzies. This isn't syrupy sentimentality, as we see in so-called love today, but rather a willful, sacrificial agape that we noted earlier. Such love, as we have noted, is based upon a permanent promise, the covenant of companionship. So the parallel is striking. While this story is primarily a picture of God's relationship with his wife Israel, it accurately demonstrates how to deal with a wayward marriage partner. Willful, loving forgiveness will hold the relationship together. Now, folks, if that could be true of the heinous sin of adultery, which, by the way, of course, was worthy of death in the first place, it's obviously sufficient for lesser problems in a marriage, don't you think? Ponder, secondly, not only forgiving love, but forsaking of sin forsaking of sin. Again, as Gomer turned from her sin, and as Israel will one day turn from hers, restoring a marriage depends upon repentance and forsaking of sin. We know the verse very well, do we not? For if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm sure your pastor has shared this before. But any of us, none of us are free of sin. And therefore, we still live a need, we still live in the problem of the unredeemed flesh, Paul tells us in Romans 7. So it is needful that we claim this verse every day. But folks, in case you don't know this already and your pastor's never shared it, and I'm sure he has, but the Greek here behind confess is a tremendous word. It's the word homologeo. Let me break it down for you because I, I hope you'll remember it. It is the root of it, legeo, uh, means to say. Therefore, the prefix homo means same, yielding the literal idea to say the same words. To say the same words. Therefore, to confess sin means what? To say the same thing about sin that God says about sin. In short, to confess your sin means to call your sin, what? Sin. It's not making excuses for our sin. It's not shifting the blame to her or him or anyone else. It is to say with David, I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. 
The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. Psalm 51. David then adds in verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Folks, only this, is a, only this can be accomplished when we, to restore a hurting relationship. We must forsake our sin. One more principle and we close. Forgiving love, forsaking sin, and a fervor for the Word of God. A fervor for the Word. Once again, as Israel will return and seek the Lord their God, Hosea 3.5, the only way to restore a wayward marriage is to turn and return to the Word of God. You must return to the very principles we've outlined in our short study. And folks, if you don't, I'm just going to be frank with you. There's little hope. There, there, young people get married today without Christ, there's very little hope. The only hope is in the Word of God. God alone can fix the problems in the, in the relationship, but only if we obey His Word. So as we close, I just make this practical. Read the Scriptures together. Pray together. Come under the preaching of the Word together covenant with each other to obey the word listen to each other start dating again not other people but each other <laughs> and indeed rekindle that see relationships are like buildings they're like buildings they don't happen by magic they need renovation they need rebuilding by painstaking, careful construction. So folks, I just encourage us, let us have marriages that honor and glorify the Lord. Why? So we can show the world that there really is a difference in being a Christian. There's a difference. In every area of life, there's a transformation and a difference that shows and radiates from each of us. God bless you. Thanks.